welcome once again to EW10's Bookmark. I'm Doug Keck, your host. Our guest author is Donald J. Johnson. His book is Twisted Unto Destruction, How Bible Alone Theology Made the World a Worse Place, published by our friends at Catholic Answers, available through our EW10 Religious Catalog, EW10RC.com, all things Catholic. Welcome, Tom. Thanks, Doug. To, Good to, to have be here. you here. Uh, There's a pretty tough title here, uh, book, especially for somebody who was raised a Protestant. Yeah, and who still has plenty of Protestant friends and family members. So <laughs> um, I got to give credit to Catholic Answers for being brave enough to put that on there. But I stand by right. it. I think it's accurate that, in fact, uh, Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone theology, has, in fact, made the world worse. Right. I can understand the twisted and how people can spin it, obviously, from the Sola Scriptura. But, but in the sense of how did it make it worse, as in your perspective? Well, I think it one cannot stand against certain moral evils right so we all i mean i think we understand moral relativism our culture if you don't have a standard for right and wrong that you don't stand up to vices that present themselves in the culture but uh protestantism i think and especially sola scriptura not only does not stand up against certain vices but it actually tends to and almost always does mm -hmm. put a divine mandate on those vices so you end up with a sin Mm -hmm. be it sexual immorality, racism, consumerism, avarice, these kind of things. You end up with a sin that is now being committed in the name of God. Mm -hmm. So like, Jesus wants me to do this. <laughs> well, that like adds, slavery. Like, right, slavery is a good about, example, right? right? In America, like slavery, I think, was um, embedded in our culture and harder to root out of our culture primarily because we had given it such a strong divine mandate. Mm -hmm. And so if you come and say, hey, the abolitionist movement was opposed because, hey, you guys are, are fighting against God. It well, is wasn't God's the will. abolitionist movement considered a Christian movement? Well, it was, which is one of the examples, right? That's an right. irony that happens when you have Sola Scriptura. You've got arguments on both sides, but on what basis? So if you've got right. one side saying, hey, Jesus wants us to free the slaves, and the other side saying, no, Jesus wants us to keep the slaves, well, who gets to decide? Mm -hmm. Well, both sides consider the other side enemies of God Because each one can proof text yeah, their support. Yeah, you can pro absolutely proof text whatever you want, okay. and they did, right? right. And so you end up with um, grave evils being practiced in the name of God, and people thinking that I'm now defending right. like the very scriptures, you know, the, the very faith. I'm, you have, uh, like the abolitionist movement is a good one, and then the southern um, op op opposition to that, saying these northern godless atheists are coming down here attacking Christianity and the very scriptures right. themselves. If you want to be on God's side, you need to oppose them. We need to fight slavery right. because God wants us to. Well, that's a, that's a much different fight then, mm -hmm. right? If you've right. got God on your side, as we know, not only within Christianity, but anytime right. that you, that. you bring God into the equation, right. now we've got a, a much different game and yeah. a much more dangerous Right, ones. and I think it's clear in your proposition, listen, there's wonderful Christians out there where many Protestants live much better lives than many of the Catholics, yeah. you know, including maybe the people sitting at this table, <laughs> right. uh, you know, kind of a thing, or that's at this desk. But there seems to be this idea that because even if you start off with good intentions, you end up drifting, right? I think that's the case. That Listen, every major, you look at all the major sins that have overtaken our culture, right? Um, they tend to have a always the same arc. So even in like sexual immorality type, I, I 
talk about the pill and you know contraception, mm -hmm. but you can use the contraceptive debate and use it as an example of what happens in all of the rest of the debates that followed, whether it is an abortion, uh, homosexuality, now transgenderism, mm -hmm. pedophilia is coming down the road. And every time, the Christian traditional position is taken by almost all Christians, right? Mm -hmm. But then you have a few, mostly on the liberal Protestant side, let's mm -hmm. say, who say, you know what, I'm not so sure about that. And then let me look to my scriptures to see if I can support that. <laughs> is it really found in scripture? Does the Bible really say that abortion is wrong or transgenderism is wrong? And after that, they'll say, well, oh, no, it doesn't say anything. But after that, they'll say, oh, wait, actually, I think it supports it. Mm -hmm. And so with contraception, for example, I mean, up until 1930, this was one of the most unified moral positions in all of Christendom. Like, it's one of the few that nobody, Protestant, Catholic, right. Eastern Orthodox, we all agreed that contraception was a grave evil. The Lambeth Conference, the Anglicans mm -hmm. bail on it. And, and you point out, this is really good, their language was very soft. Yeah. It was a little tiny opening that went from being, in extreme cases, you can do it to, right. it's okay. Yeah, it was like for married couples, you know, very small, but they opened the crack, they opened right. the door, and pretty soon, I mean, within a couple of decades, there's really no Protestant group in the whole world that is now against contraception. Right. The Catholic Church remained the only Pretty one. Pretty much by the 50s, you kind yeah, of Yeah, by the 50s, yeah, they had to abandon it. Right. Well, that same debate is happening in real time now with homosexuality, with transgenderism. I mean, transgenderism happened, what, the day before yesterday, basically. Right. Right. Say 2015, it really exploded among young girls. By 2016, the Washington Post has an article by a transgender bisexual Christian explaining that the scripture doesn't really say much about transgenderism. And today, in my home state of California, you can drive down the street in Pasadena, and on the uh, church you have a big flag that says God's pronouns are they, them. You know, like God right. is transgender, <laughs> sort of thing. Like that's how fast it goes. Is that the cis God or the... <laughs> yeah, well, just, this, is, this yeah. is how it works, right? But the, the trajectory is always the same. Right. First you have opposition, then you open the door a little bit. Well, does the Bible really say? No, the Bible actually does, but it says positively, like God is pro-whatever, used to be a vice. Mm -hmm. And then we have a whole system now where Christians are supporting what throughout all of history has been considered a grave sin based on scripture. Well, that's- In a, what, the name of compassion, the name of tolerance? I think they want to justify their sin, mm -hmm. okay? But now they have, sola scripture has enabled them to do that. <laughs> like sola scripture opens the door for you to justify sin in the name of God. Mm -hmm. In a way that, that scripture and tradition, which is what the Catholic Church holds, right, mm -hmm. does not. Like you can have Catholics who maybe misread a portion of scripture, right? Like mm -hmm. they mistranslate it or whatever. But the church's position is, well, no, you're just wrong on that. Right, <laughs> like, right. so like you say with slavery, the Pope came out against it, yeah. didn't mean Catholics weren't doing it. Right. In fact, the first slaves who showed up in Virginia were stolen off of a Spanish ship yeah. that was going to Veracruz. That's right, right. the, the ship was right. called St. John the Baptist. I mean, right. come on, yeah, it was a Catholic ship. So yeah, obviously Catholics are sinners, Catholics right. were slaveholders, Catholics played a big part in the slave trade, but the church was officially against it. Mm -hmm. And so you can, you can go against the teachings of the church in any of these moral issues. And so in the book, I talk about slavery, I talk about consumerism, right. I talk about sexual immorality. Right. But you, as a Catholic, you're actively opposing the church. Right. 
Okay, so like today, most Catholics, it seems, are ignoring the church's teachings on contraception, for example. Well, they're bad Catholics. That's mm -hmm. just the bottom line. They're not following the teachings. And to some degree, part of it's because they don't hear it preached either. Oh, for sure, yeah. yeah. I mean. But from the Protestant perspective, I mean, I grew up not even knowing that it was possible to be against contraception. I never even heard of it. Right. <laughs> when I finally realized that the Catholic Church taught against it, I was just shocked by this. Well, just think, like, as a Protestant, if I hold a position that historically Protestants haven't held, like contraception or homosexuality, even though what you point out, Luther and the others yeah, would have oh been totally against they it. They would definitely be, have been against it. Everybody right. was. Right. Um, today, I mean, one way to understand it is there is no such thing really as a bad Protestant. Is one way to understand it. You can be a bad Catholic, but who's ever heard of being a bad Protestant? Well, one of the reasons for that is like you might be a bad, you know, First Baptist of Omaha or something like right. that, right? Like, you know, First Pentecostal Church of Des Moines. Yeah, you might not line up with their teaching, but you can always find some Somebody Protestant else. church that does. Right. And so you just move there or you start That's your own. That's where you do pastor shopping kind you of do, church Yeah, shopping. you shop around for churches, you shop around for the pastor that suits your needs, or you right. frankly start your own, right? Well, so that, that's a very big difference. Were you difference. involved, or your father was with church planting, right? Stuff yeah, like I mean, I'm very familiar with the whole concept of going in and starting your own you know, organization or starting your own church. Um, it's the Protestant way to do right. things, right? Well, you said the overreaching problem here is that we have a bunch of ostensibly religious people using Scripture for nefarious ends. Do they mean to use it for nefarious ends, do you think? I mean... I don't, it's always hard to figure out motives and whether or not they see fully what they're doing. I mean, some people, I'm sure, are thinking compassionately. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think back to the slaveholders. I suspect they're just looking at their bottom line and saying, I need my plantation to continue to make right. money. Right. So on the other hand, today, I think people might be genuinely confused. And they might think that it is compassionate, for example, to uh, be pro-transgender, right? Well, in fact, that is not compassionate and using the scriptures in that way is actually harming people. These are the facts, but they may not understand that. So I'm willing to give them sort of the benefit of the doubt when it comes to what are your motives. But that doesn't change the fact that using scripture to support some of these grave evils is wrong and it's making things worse. Mm -hmm. I talked to a, a mom, a young mom who's a friend of mine the other day who was not really familiar with what's going on in the transgender world, for example, and her, her daughter's friend had changed the pronouns and started to transition. Mm -hmm. And she came to me, she had been reading a book, and she just kind of offhandedly said, you know, I've been reading some stuff about this, and it seems like, I didn't realize there's so many sense. genders, it uh, kind of makes sense. And yeah, so I stopped right, her, yeah. you know, very quickly. We had a three-hour conversation about this. But, I mean, her heart, I feel like, was in the right place. Right. But she was being completely lied to with this scriptural support for the transgender movement. And right. so that aspect of it, I mean, just, you know, a good-hearted mom who's trying to do her best now thinks that it's the Christian thing to do. I mean, she doesn't because I talked her out of it. Right. But, you know, the Christian thing to do is to support these young girls transitioning. Well, no, it isn't. And also there's a, there's a heavy secular cultural pressure to fit in, and nobody wants to not be... They may not say, I don't want to be hip, but that's sort of what you mean. Nobody wants to be excluded. Nobody wants to right. kind of be the other. You want to be part of the group. You say, I thought this was interesting. A similar principle applies to Protestantism. Ultimately, if you want to produce a truly righteous, righteous culture on a wide scale, Protestantism is not the worldview to promote. You say the history of Protestantism, particularly as it's been lived out in America, attests to that. 
And that's the story we now turn to. It's surprising to me on one level because you look at it and you say, here's the United States, we're mostly a Protestant country, as you yeah. attest to yourself, and everybody wants to come here. So what's so bad about Protestantism in the United States? Well, okay, so if you look at what makes the United States great and what are its faults, shall we say, and I think we need to realize, like, it does have some faults. <laughs> yes, you outlined several. Of them. Yeah, several of them. Primary, like I think you know, you look at America as a as a father of four kids, three teenage girls. I see a lot of negatives, mm -hmm. right? Uh, my kids are fed a lot of uh, pornography. I mean, obviously we try to protect them, but just the culture that they breathe. Um, they're fed a lot of consumerism. There is a lot of discord and nihilism in the culture. Mm -hmm. Well, I think a lot of that comes from the hyper-individualism combined with Sola Scriptura that is found uniquely in America. So there is like this hyper um, separation of everybody where we are like strong individualists, but individualists to the extent that I get to dictate everything that I think about reality. I almost have to dictate reality around me, right? So you you have Supreme Court justices, as we know, yes. who have interpreted Kennedy, right, Kennedy, right the Declaration Kennedy, of Independence right. and the Constitution in a way that we get to create our own reality. Right. Well, how did that come about? Well, part of that is the sola scriptura. Of course, Kennedy was a Catholic. Yeah, well, <laughs> I actually had just a discussion about this recently. One of the, many of the problems that we find, even within the Catholic Church, I would blame on the Protestantization of the church, mm -hmm. so we have even priests, you know, well-known priests in this co in this country, who are approaching the faith and approaching scripture, for example, basically as liberal Protestants. I mean, mm -hmm. if you look at the way they approach the text, that is how they're approaching it. Mm -hmm. uh, they're they're taking an, a non-Catholic uh, position on this text, mm -hmm. interpreting it in a way that is all their own. <laughs> well, who does that? Sola Scriptura is what teaches that, right? Like that's a Protestant way to approach the text. Um, and so if you do find Catholics that are holding a position contrary to what the church officially teaches, and I mean the church doesn't mm -hmm. have official teaching about everything. I mean there are there are areas for, for open fact, disagreement. There's a lot of yeah, yeah, doesn't have that many right? actually. Not in all that our many, ways. but right, right. but to those things that we do have, mm -hmm. well we need to hold to those, okay? <laughs> like if the church mm -hmm. teaches it, we gotta hold to that. And to uh, disregard that based on your own private interpretation of scripture, well no, that's we don't accept that. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that not only do we not accept it, we don't accept it for a very good reason because that leads to mm -hmm. some of the major problems that we have in America today. Is it a great country? Of course. Right. But is it also exporting a lot of evil around the world based on this mindset? Absolutely. Were some of those grave evils allowed to flourish here in America because of our uh, mindset, I think so. So how do we end up with a, a situation at times where we have this radical individualism, supposedly, and I'm defining my own thing, but yet I have a culture that's saying I need to conform, and and, and groups are forcing others to conform in, in this midst of, but I'm my own rock. Yeah, I mean, I think that is part of the nature of propaganda and how societies flourish. I mean, it's like, I remember I always used to laugh at the old Dr. Pepper commercial mm -hmm. where you'd have a bunch of popular you know, musicians and sports figures trying to sell you Dr. Pepper and the tagline was, be you. Mm -hmm. Well, they're not actually saying be you, they're saying be like me, right? Like that's, yeah. that's the message. They want to be a pepper, I think, <laughs> yeah. is what they want. So right. a lot of uh, social conformity, it is social conformity, but it's, it's sold in the language of individuality. 
So we want you to be all you can possibly be at our public school. But what that looks like is you're going to join the clubs that we tell you to join. You're going to wear the clothes we tell you to wear. I mean, that is the nature of, of you know, right. American culture in general as we do. We are open to a lot of uh, propaganda and social pressures, right. yeah. Since Scola Scriptura is all about denying the authority of tradition in each new generation, that anti-tradition principle keeps getting played farther out to the logical end. What's the logical end? I actually think they're doing away with church altogether is how it works out. Like mm -hmm. we're all our own little authorities when it comes to scriptural um, interpretation. But that doesn't leave you much reason to go to church. And so now with the rise of technology, you see this. Like where do, where do many people get yeah, church Yeah, you talk about days? it in the book. Yeah, right. they listen to their podcasts. They watch their favorite preacher on YouTube. Uh, churches around the country are getting less and less people. I think this is an unspoken mm -hmm. reason why. It's like, I don't need to come to church to listen to this guy. I can listen right. to somebody who's much better <laughs> online. And the way it's going, I can listen to PBS, and I don't even have to listen to you because I'll hear basically the same thing. Exactly. Well, that is in one of the, it struck me that that is one of the dynamic issues with Catholicism during the pandemic, which is we as Catholics believe something is happening at that mass that I'm, I need to be there to participate yeah. in. Yeah, the incarnational aspect, right. which I, as a convert, just found so compelling. Like, I go to Mass because Jesus is there, you know. It's something that is, frankly, very much missing from Protestant churches. You say in, in the moral chaos we're dealing with, the path doesn't end with religious hyper-individualism, however. It also leads to moral hyper-individualism. Yeah, this is where the rubber hits the road, right, is that, yes, we understand. I think those who, who are watching EWTN probably understand quite well the many denominations and splinter groups that result from the Reformation. But almost instantly, also at the Reformation, and Luther was very upset about this, is that the moral degradation and right. moral relativism that resulted <laughs> immediately among Luther's own Protestants, like he was aghast at the things that they were now doing. He's like, why are you acting this way? You're worse than the papists, he says. Mm. <laughs> because, hey, listen, if you don't have that doctrinal teaching, if I can interpret the scripture to say whatever I want, right. well, I get to live however I want. And that's exactly what happened. I'm, I'm not sure, mm. I think, I mean, I think Luther just maybe didn't quite see, he wasn't as that great of a philosopher, perhaps, that he didn't quite see some of the logical consequences of his view, I, I actually think he maybe thought everybody would agree with him. Right. Well, wasn't that what he always talked about? Yeah, I mean, they like, talk about the, uh, one know. of the lines, it was a Melanchthon about the rabbi. Yeah. Everybody's their own rabbi. I think he had, Luther had some line about every milkmaid thinks that they can now interpret the Bible. Yeah, and how he didn't see that was going to happen, I think, is a bit... Well, because he was the new authority. Well, he was the guy, yeah. I guess everybody should have listened to him. That's and right. people think they're going to be. Yeah. And, and you talk about in the chapter, you broke it up into basically... Uh, three chapters here. I have three main objectives for each of the chapters you go through. It's actually four chapters. The, uh, you talk about vice, power, and money. Chapter two deals with lust for power. Three, love of money. And then with rampant consumerism. Four, you talk about uh, basically sexual revolution and contraception. You say, I have three main objectives for each chapter. The first one is examine the nature of the evil in question. Yeah. This one, I think, particularly in the consumerism chapter, I spent a little bit more time just talking about the sin because we don't recognize it as much, mm -hmm. that to be living the American dream today is primarily about buying, using, discarding, mm -hmm. and then repeating. <laughs> like, that's what we do. And um, that this was, this is a major sin. Like, it's actually many sins rolled up 
into the American dream. Avarice, of course, is a big mm -hmm. one, but idolatry, greed, theft is a part of this. And I'm not sure everybody necessarily recognizes that. But that was something also, as you point out in the book, it's, it doesn't start that way, you know, in a lot of oh, ways. No. But slowly it, it rolls in that direction, right? Yeah, that's right. You're not, I mean, the Protestants, if anything, the reformers were more against avarice. Like, this is one of the reasons they reformed, right? right? That the avarice was taken over part of the church. I mean, they taught extensively against these evils. Yet, when the Industrial Revolution comes along, some of the more secular philosophers, guys like Hume, start saying that, no, avarice is not a bad thing. This is a good thing. We should be accumulating goods for ourselves. It's in our nature. When some of these evils present themselves to the culture, that Protestantism simply didn't have the strength to stand against it. And so when you do have the Industrial Revolution, and Luther, by the way, twisted church's teaching, so he, he absolutely hated the idea of priestly celibacy. Right. Right? Like, he, you should be having a lot of kids. Everybody. Nobody should be. Because a, of his own personal problems. Because of his own personal problems. Right. Well, this caused a lot of problems for pastors. Mm -hmm. Like, it's very difficult to continue to have children after children and still serve. This is what the Catholic Church and Jesus and Peter and Paul have always known, right? Yeah. Well, so the churches were starting to have less kids post-Industrial Revolution. Right what's happening, there's a lot more secular pressure to have less kids, Darwinism comes on the scene, right. the eugenics o movement comes on the scene, Malthusian mm -hmm. overpopulation right. lies come on the scene, and the pressure for contraception becomes greatly increased. Who stands against that? Well, again, only the Catholics. The, the Protestants tried for a little while, mm -hmm. but thanks to people like Margaret Sanger, uh, founder of the Birth Control League and precursor to Planned Parenthood, mm -hmm. as we all know. Um, birth control took hold, and uh, uh, a, a really nasty form, frankly, of a birth control movement, which was strongly eugenic, oh, yeah. very racist, right? right? But Sanger's, she knew that if she could get the pastors on board, that she could change the culture. And that's exactly what she did. She had an army of preachers. She, she, they would have a, a contest every year for the best pro-contraception sermon in the country. And right. everybody would submit. I mean, she was uh, very talented in that way, in an, in an evil way. But she got the church right. on board. And again, like we said earlier, within a couple of decades, nobody's standing against And as it. you indicated in that 1957 interview that she did with Mike Wallace, her biggest opponent was the Catholic Church. It was always, always and only, frankly. She, right. she would woo the Protestants, but fight the Catholics. I think she understood instinctively, maybe she just realized that they're not, they're not going to change, so I need to make them the enemy. And she used that anti-Catholicism, frankly, of wooing Protestant pastors. They're like, oh, if Catholics are for contraception, already it's questionable, <laughs> or sorry, against contraception, already it's questionable. And so she would use that. But yeah, always the Catholic Church was always her greatest enemy. Right, and they use the idea of the, the idea of fewer good Protestants are, are having children and, and all of these vermin are coming over from Italy and from Absolutely. Ireland and just ha populating with all of their, you know, having... Uh, all these immigrant Catholics Catholic with their huge families. families yeah, right, right, very yeah, strong. The whole litter of them, you know, Absolutely. exactly, have that negative aspect. It was interesting also, and you talk about it just so much in the book, really, in the idea of, uh, which I thought was good was in talking about being blessed and the idea of how you see, you know, you start with the Puritans in cer certain ways with the idea of if somebody is being blessed with good things, it shows that they're living a good life and how that rolls into the name it and claim it 
kind of prosperity gospel we have today, right? Yeah, I mean, we all kind of know the Joel Osteens, the health and wealth preachers. I mean, back in the 80s, of course, they were the, you know, very flamboyant, mm -hmm. but there's a long tradition Copeland, of the, Yeah, exactly, right? right. right. Okay. We think of them as con men, not so much anymore. They're much more smooth. And even those churches that aren't health and wealth gospel churches these days, I think implicitly a lot of times support this with their pro-consumerism or silence against the evils of consumerism mm -hmm. approach. Well, this again came, this was probably the most biblically supported movement in American history, mm -hmm. <laughs> really. Uh, started with a guy named E.W. Kenyon back in the yeah, late 18th yeah. uh, 100s, early 1900s, who was just Bible saturated. But he was using the Bible in the wrong way. Like, yes, God will bless us, we understand that. But the dangers of wealth and the Catholic approach to money, which is to say, if we see somebody you know, poor on the street today in America, unfortunately, we often say, oh, what bad decisions did they make? We almost blame them implicitly. Sometimes they made, listen, admittedly, right, sometimes right. they made a lot of bad decisions. But historically, that's not how the poor were approached, right? Sometimes you might have chosen to be poor. Obviously, there's a strong tradition of religious taking vows of poverty in the Catholic right. Church. Or we might say, listen, we have a compassion on that person. We're going to help them out. They have had a bad luck in life or whatever. The health and wealth gospel have switched that and combined it with what we now understand to be in a, a, the American dream, which I think, again, is a twisting of the original American dream. But to we, we blame people for being poor and being poor is a morally indefensible position <laughs> that you should be if you're not making a lot of money that you're making bad decisions and not doing what God wants you to do with your life. Right, that's the point. Not even just making bad decisions, but maybe a lack of faith. Yes, a lack of faith, and, a, and you're not in the will of God. If you're in the will of God, you should be making a lot of money. Wow. I mean, that's... Well, That's Jesus was upper middle class, you know, <laughs> you know after. Well, well, yeah. so I, I quote some preachers who actually say, who actually make that argument, right, like, exactly. like he's a rich person. Well, Absolutely. Twisted that. unto destruction, how Bible alone theology made the world a worse place. And we just about scratched, there's a lot of information yeah. in, a, in, a, in a very readable book. Donald J. Johnson, thank you so much for joining us here on Bookmark. Thank you. Check that book out. It's available through our EWTN Religious Catalog, EWTNRC.com. For all things Catholic, I'm Doug Keck. Thank you for joining us here on Bookmark. We shall see you next time.